You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, this is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference, and I'm joined today for this special edition podcast by Paul Kotcher, who is one of two people who independently discovered Spectre and is also co-author on the Meltdown paper. Paul is also a well-known voice at the RSA conference and will be part of our ever-popular crypto panel this year in San Francisco, where there will certainly be no shortage of topics to discuss. Paul, thanks for joining me today to share some of your insights with our audience. Thanks, Britt. It's great to be here. Let's start with um, what are Spectre and Meltdown? How, How did this happen? Could it have been avoided? Let's start there. Well, so they're two different vulnerabilities that affect microprocessors, um, and they have different implications for end users and, and IT staff, so I'll talk about each of them in a little bit of detail. Um, meltdown is a, um, something that sort of behaves like a fairly typical bug. It's something that lets software read out the physical memory of the computer. If a system isn't patched and somebody can run unprivileged code on it, they can see everything else running on the machine. So it's a particularly large threat in cloud environments. Spectre is something different. It's really a new attack technique. Um, you could think of it as maybe comparable to buffer overflows or use after free or return oriented programming. It's basically a way that somebody can trick a microprocessor into optimizing its execution in a way that leaks out the memory contents of the machine or other processes. So while its consequence is a little bit similar to Meltdown, the mitigations are enormously more complicated, and it's one that's going to be with us for a very long time. Got it. So do you think this is just the tip of the iceberg of more things to be found? It probably is. I mean, if you look at history, it's rare that the first paper that describes an attack technique identifies the most effective ways to use it. Um, So... I think we're going to be seeing quite a lot of research in this area. We're also going to see attackers using the techniques they may well have already. It's just that we don't really know. Um, But the ability to take perfectly well-written code running on a microprocessor and make it behave in ways that are insecure is exactly the kind of thing that attackers want to accomplish. And it uh, saves them the problem of finding, for example, exploitable bugs that would be required for a buffer overflow attack, for example. Sure. Okay. So I have a series of two questions. And first I'm going to ask, you know, me, me as the individual and then me as the corporation. So first, me as the individual sitting sitting here at home, what do I need to do to protect myself? How, how should I as a person with my own devices be reacting to this news? Uh, so, so you as an individual for Meltdown, what you really need to do is install the patches for your operating system. So there are patches for Microsoft and for Linux and for iOS and Mac OS and so forth that um, really completely address the issue. And even though the issue is in the hardware, there's a way for software to work around it. Those patches do come with some performance overhead that people have been talking about. But yep. at the end of the day, it's much better to have a slightly slower computer than a compromised computer. Um yeah. On the Spectre front, as an individual, you're also really at the whim of what patches become available, but that's more complicated because the patches involve major changes to software and also changes to the microcode, which is kind of the um, hidden, almost software deep inside your microprocessor. 
So the mitigations there are going to take longer. There are also a lot of processors for which there won't be any mitigations. So there will be ongoing exposure there. Now, you have to compare that against the other computer security risks. I mean, if you want to be truly safe from a computer security perspective, you have to get rid of all your computers. And this is <laughs> sort of one more issue piled onto the giant pile of things to worry about. Um, but you were at risk before and you're still at risk now. So it's not a enormous change in the overall risk profile. Still, there's something anxiety-inducing about having vulnerabilities that aren't completely mitigated in your machines. Sure, sure. And the second vulnerabilities have names. They just feel scarier, and these are two two, <laughs> two big, scary-sounding names. So that's, that's me as the individual. Now, how about me as the CISO within an organization? What, what should I be doing across my organization to best, to best protect? Well, so, I mean, there you've got a bunch of issues to be careful with on the server side. So um, if you're using cloud servers, for example, that are not properly patched you're in, uh, for meltdown, you're at an extreme risk. So making sure that those mitigations are applied across all of your different servers is an absolute top priority um, and one that most of the cloud providers are doing a pretty good job about, but if you have internal machines that you're hosting, especially if they're running multiple types of workloads with different security properties, you've got to act quite quickly there. Um, one of the questions to ask yourself is, to, is whether there are places where you're sharing processors or machines with unknown parties. So, for example, if you're renting uh, time from a cloud provider where you're only using one VCU, uh, one, VC, one virtual CPU, or you're using only a part of the machine, you might consider whether that risk is worth taking. Because I suspect we're going to be seeing more issues over time where people find ways to, for example, take the code running in one hyperthread of a processor and use that to extract information uh, from the code running in the other hyperthread. Um, on the Spectre front. There's also the question of trying to figure out what systems you've got that might be exposed. And I think it's a little too early to really know for sure, although um, clearly systems where you're running code received from untrusted sources like JavaScript interpreters are, um, and Git compilers are certainly an area where we know that there can be exploits. But there are a lot of others as well that haven't been carefully explored yet. For example, database systems may receive queries from an untrusted source and may well have um, interpreters and JIT functionality inside that can um, yield exploitable code patterns. So there's a lot more that we, I think, don't really know yet about how this will play out. Um, but at the end of the day, it's certainly a guarantee it's going to mean more work for the IT team. Sure, sure. So you've already answered a little bit of my next question, but I wanted to dig in maybe a little bit further there. So what I'm hearing is we don't know yet if this vulnerability has been exploited by any bad actors. Is that correct? Correct. Um, there was an extended embargo period while various technology companies were working on it, and it's probably a pretty safe bet that certainly some of the government actors were aware of it during that time. The question of whether they were exploiting it and at what scale and against which targets is the sort of thing that you never get told about. Um, sure. It does mean, though, that if you had, for example, SSL private keys or SSH private keys sitting on servers, 
you should ask yourself about whether those servers were ones where somebody else could have rented time on them and copied the data off. If so, you might want to reconsider um, regenerating those keys somewhat in the same way that a lot of people did after the Heartbleed um, vulnerability came to light. Got it. So any any that and that's a that's a very good tangible step that can be taken. Any additional steps you'd recommend companies take um, to try to combat this the the long term issue related to anticipated adversarial moves? I mean, I think it's hard to predict exactly sure. how it will play out. I mean, it's certainly not something again as I described with respect to individuals where the overall risk profile has changed in a hugely dramatic way because there are a lot of other risks that you're exposed to from a computer security perspective. Um, I think I would reiterate the advice I gave a second ago about making sure that if you have high-value um, data or systems to seriously consider making sure that those are never co-located in the same machine uh, with code that came from other parties or code that you don't trust. Yep, which is just good good hygiene practice. So why wasn't this detected sooner? You know, that's a really good question, and it really should have been discovered a decade ago, and it's a bit surprising and simultaneously kind of horrifying that it wasn't. Um, I think part of it is that it's very hard to um, sort of see what's going on in the speculative execution um, logic of a microprocessor because as a regular programmer, when you write the instructions of your program out, it looks to you like the processor is, is executing those faithfully and in the order that you wrote them down. But really what's happening is the processor runs far ahead and goes off and guesses different directions and then throws away the work that is erroneous. So you don't overtly see those mistakes that the processor is making. And for these attacks, they're picking up on little, almost sort of little breadcrumbs that are left over um, from those errors and inducing the errors, but it's something you wouldn't see unless you really went looking for it. I think there is a fair question, though, as to why the microprocessor makers and also the professors and students who have been taking classes and teaching how to build microprocessors for so long didn't take a careful look at the security implications of these optimizations that have become really broadly adopted in the industry. I mean, if we look at all of the sort of major vendors of high-speed microprocessors, They've all followed the same playbook in terms of optimization and all created the same exposures, which to me indicates really a lack of careful architectural thought and attention to security, as well as a prioritization of performance at the expense of um, of security as well. Yep. Now that's where I was going to go with my next question. Was I've seen some articles that you know blame a rapid rush to bring technology, you know, first mover, get it get it out first, and security and privacy on a on the back burner. And you know, in recent years it seems like security became the, you know, built in versus bolted on and we've had this rah rah in the industry and isn't this great. And then this happened and it's like, oh wow <laughs> this is this is a vulnerability that's been out there for a long time. Um so do you think some this was some of this fast movement to to bring to market that created some issues? I think it's a little bit different from that because these products have been on the market for, for a very long time. It's not like speculative execution is just a brand new thing that was rushed to market. It's been out there for a long time. So we've certainly had a uh, I think failure of 
the people who are designing microprocessors, and that includes professors teaching, teaching courses in microprocessor design, their students, to really look at what the security implications are of the designs that they've been putting forward. And the fact that these issues affect all the different microprocessor vendors also reflects, again, that it's an industry-wide failure to think about these issues in the right way. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that if you're building high-speed microprocessors, there are a couple of basic constraints coming from electrical engineering that you have to deal with if you want to make your processors faster. And one of them is that clock speeds just haven't been increasing that much. Since around 2005 or so, processors have been stuck in the 3 to 4 gigahertz maximum speed, and there really haven't been significant increases there. Also, memory performance hasn't increased significantly. There have been some gains, but not nearly enough to uh, keep pace with Moore's Law or people's desire for more speed. So if you want to make a faster microprocessor, the way you have to do that is by getting more work done in each clock cycle. And if you look at these attacks, they take advantage of two of the sort of key architectural elements that are enabling more work to get done in each clock cycle. And one of those is the memory cache, uh, which speeds up memory access for frequently accessed locations. The other is speculative execution, which is a technique used in processors where when the processor is stuck idling, for example, waiting for something from memory to tell it whether it's going to steer left or steer right, it'll just pick the most likely direction based on past behavior and run ahead. And most often, you know, 90% of the time or better, the processor will guess correctly and useful work gets done and you get better performance. It's just that that technique of optimization when it goes wrong, ends up having the processor doing things that the programmer who wrote the software never expected would occur and can be influenced by an attacker. And that's exactly what the Spectre flaws take advantage of. Sure. So so a last question for you. Is there any impact on IoT devices? You know, for devices that only run one um, sort of piece of software and the firmware that's built into it and never receive any software and only have one security domain on them, the threats are not particularly serious. Um, it tends to be a greater risk when you have different security domains or compartments or processes that are supposed to be kept separate from each other. It doesn't mean that there may not be extensions of these attacks that apply in some of those environments, um, but they're certainly a significantly lesser concern than cloud systems and browsers and things like that. One other factor in the IoT front as well is that the processors used in many of those devices are very simple designs that don't contain the optimizations that Spectre, for example, takes advantage of. Sure. Well, it sounds like we're at the beginning of what will become – we'll have more and more in front of us. So by the time you're on this, this panel talking crypto – in April in San Francisco, we're probably going to know a whole lot more. Um, I know you've been extremely busy since this has been announced. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to discuss this with, with us and our audience today and look very much forward, look forward to your participation in April at RSA Conference. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conference, too.